I welcome you today to Grace at all of our locations. We're so glad that you're here. You know, being together with believers is such an important part of our journey with Christ. For a number of weeks now, we've been sharing these amazing kingdom assignment stories. For those of you who may not know, uh, several weeks ago, we gave out 200 envelopes with $100 in each one of them with each recipient getting an assignment. We want you to ask the Holy Spirit how you should creatively use this and invest it for his kingdom and help someone in a compassionate way and do it in the name of Jesus. And boy, the stories have been amazing. They keep on coming in. We're probably only gonna read uh, just a few more of these stories in the coming weeks. There's so many, but hopefully they will be accessible online or somewhere if you'd like to read all of them. I want to read this one today. It's from Sarah Tropp, a part of a member of our church family. And Sarah, how did you feel when you first understood this assignment? She said, I've been in church all my life. So after a message about compassion and giving, I expected those envelopes to be something where the church was going to ask us to give to a cause or a person in need. When I heard that the church was giving us money to bless others, I was shocked, shocked in a good way. It made me beyond thankful to be part of Grace Fellowship and thankful for the heart of the ministry here. So Sarah, how did you actually utilize this money? She said, my husband and I own a store in Troy, so I'm downtown a lot, and people ask me for money on a regular basis. They even come into our store asking for cash for the bus or money for food. So I thought this would be an easy assignment. We prayed as a family that God would direct us to just the right person. And then no one asked me for money. I couldn't even believe it. Week one went by and I kept looking for homeless people or waiting for someone to stop into our shop. But no one was there. I thought, surely next week, but still no one. We then wondered if maybe we're blind to the needs of those around us and not involved enough. With that said, we're out and about all the time. God must not have the right person yet. And then came this week. So Sarah, how did you use the money? She says, I was sitting in my car at the Starbucks on Hoosick Street, working on emails for about 15 minutes. As I was sitting there, an older lady was walking through the parking lot, pulling her oxygen tank. I instantly got so excited and thought, is she the one, God? I watched her as she walked in the parking lot. She made eye contact with me. I smiled big, and she walked up to my car. She said, I have no money to cover anything more than my rent. I am not lying. I could really use just a little money if you could spare it. I replied, I'm so happy you stopped by my car. You see, our church, Grace Fellowship, just gave us money to bless those around us who may have a need. And I've been praying about who to give it to, and I know you're the one. What's your name? I asked her. Maria, she replied. 
Then I told her that God loves her even on the worst days and that Jesus died on the cross for her sins. I asked her if I could pray for her about what's getting her down. She smiled with tears rolling down her face and quickly said yes. We prayed and cried together. She told me how lonely she is and I asked her if she would feel comfortable maybe coming to church to meet people and get out. I told her we actually have a bus ministry that could even pick her up. She said she would love that. And as she left, I said, now, what should you remember today, Maria? Tears still rolling down her face, she smiled and said, God loves me. And then Sarah ends by saying, I'll also be sending her a card with a gospel track in it soon. Thanks so much for this idea and for helping to align my thinking to a more Christ-centered focus. We want to make this a goal and set aside money mostly to those around us in need. We went from trying to avoid the homeless to looking and praying for just the right person to help. What a blessing. God is so good. Could we give God praise for just another amazing story? God is doing some awesome stuff. And thank you, Sarah, for this amazing story that you've shared and for letting the Holy Spirit guide you. We started a series last week called Life Songs, where we're looking at some of those songs that not only sing to our soul, but make our souls sing. Songs that we need to go back to over and over again. And we talked about the fact that through the generations, you know, it's true, we really listen to music very differently. And I was so excited last week when uh, many of you acknowledged that you still remember listening to music on an eight-track player, you know, just like Jesus did, right? Amen? <laughs> just like Jesus did. And I was so thrilled to see how many of you do that. But but you know that after eight tracks came this thing we called cassettes. You remember those? Some of you are still hung up on those. I'm telling you, you're, you're still listening to your music that way. Now, listen, in our basement, I have a big wooden, it's like a rack. It's like a holding case for these cassette tapes. And it's got all my cassette tapes in it from the 1980s. And it's just collecting dust down there. You know what I mean? And I keep wondering, should I just like give this away, throw this away? Because, you know, you can listen to all of that music online now, right? You can stream it. You've got all kinds of great ways to listen to it. And the quality is so much better. Because the truth is, young people today listen to most of their music on things like Apple Music or or playlist on Spotify. Now, many of you don't know what Spotify is. You think that sounds like a diagnosis you definitely don't want to get from your doctor, right? <laughs> Mr. Johnson, I'm really sad to tell you, sir, but our tests reveal that you have a bad case of Spotify. <laughs> right? You, it's like something you don't want to hear. But the point is, we really listen to music differently 
through the generations. But what we're learning in this series is that there are some songs that we go back to over and over because they fortify us. And obviously God's word is the ultimate fortification. Obviously it is unique. And there are songs in here in the book of Psalms that sing to our soul and make our souls sing. So let's jump in. Grab a Bible if you have one or whatever way you read scripture today on your portable device or whatever. And let's dive into another one of these amazing life songs. This is definitely one of those we all need on our playlist. We all need to grapple with this song for confession. Now, before we start in verse 1, I want to say that the human author of this psalm is universally recognized as David, the one they call King David, the second king of the United Kingdom of Israel. And it's also almost universally agreed that this song, this psalm, was written sometime after his adulterous affair because he knew what it was like to get off of God's pathway. He knew what it was like to go against God's will and break God's laws because that's what he experienced. And sometime after he confessed his sin and received God's forgiveness, he wrote about that experience. So that's what we have here in Psalm 32. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now let's pause right there. I want you to notice right up front today a close correlation between a person who has acknowledged confess their sin and been forgiven of that and the blessed life. This blessed life here, by the way, would be the Old Testament equivalent to what Jesus talked about in John 10, 10, the abundant life. When he said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, that you would be able to experience this abundant life. But notice here where David says that comes from. There's this close correlation between have you gone through the door of confession? Have you acknowledged that you got off God's pathway? Have you come clean about that? Have you been transparent? Have you confessed it to God and received his amazing forgiveness by grace? You see, that is the doorway to the blessed life. He's saying to you and me, men and women of all ages, young people, he's saying, look, the blessed life is a transparent life. The blessed life is not a life where you try to manage your image and try to make people think that you always live 50 miles from the nearest known sin. Oh, no, no. The blessed life, the real abundant life, the life of deep and profound shalom is what this is describing. That life is a life where we get real with God and we quit pretending. And by the way, that's the reason today we are going to end this service in a very special way. We're going to have some of our leaders, pastors, 
ministry leaders, small group leaders, mature, seasoned Christians here at the front, and they would love to spend just a moment with you. They're not going to take much of your time. But I want you to be thinking, even throughout this sermon, of what it is maybe that God would want you to come and pray about today. Because you see, I don't know about you, but I need this every day. I need this every day because I feel that tug of temptation. I feel the way my sin nature draws me away from the good life that God has intended. And so we're going to come, many of us, at the end of this service, and there'll be all kinds of reasons that we come. And I just want you to be open for how God may be tapping you on the shoulder, okay? So be ready for that when that time comes at the end of the service. But I think before we go any further in this psalm, this song of confession, I think that we need to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Oh, there's an elephant in the room, friends. And here it is. And our culture, even in the church, we don't like to talk much about sin. We really don't. It is so politically incorrect, and it makes everybody uncomfortable. And so what do we do? We, we create euphemisms for it. We'll say things like, well, I made a mistake. Now, can sin be a mistake? Absolutely. But my concern there is if we just call it a mistake, it's like we're not necessarily acknowledging any moral responsibility. It's kind of like saying a, a, a little child would make a mistake, perhaps if they color outside the lines in their coloring book. There was no ill intent. There's nothing egregious or morally wrong. It just, it's just a mistake. We just went a bit outside of the lines. And if that's what we mean when we call sin a mistake, then we're in dangerous territory indeed. Or perhaps we'll call our sin a disease. Now, the Bible describes sin like a disease. In fact, it talks about this sin nature that we have inherited. So in that sense, it is a bit like a disease. But when I hear people say, well, you know what? I've just got a short fuse. Yeah, I've got a volcanic explosive anger. What about it? People are just going to have to deal with it. That's the way I'm wired. My family was this way. And when we talk like that, what we're doing is shirking personal responsibility. And we're talking as though a trait of sinfulness in us is something that we just have absolutely no control over whatsoever. Or I hear people use words like addiction. Now, can sin be addictive? Of course it can. In fact, if you read scripture carefully, you will see, brothers and sisters, that sin has a huge addictive power about it. The scripture even says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Speaking of that addictive power where it kind of captures and entangles us. But here's what I mean. If we're just kind of sloughing off our sinful patterns and our behavior as something that's no big deal, or something that, hey, we just got in our genes and we can't help, or something that's just an addiction and we have no responsibility whatsoever, quite frankly, that's just not true. About the year 400 AD, 
a great, great church leader and theologian we call Augustine, many call him Saint Augustine, wrote a book, an amazing book called Confessions. I strongly urge you to read that book. And in that book, he makes this amazing statement. My sin, he writes, was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. And so what I'm saying to you today is if when we come for that time of introspection and saying, Lord, what do I need to pray about in my life? I don't want you to dismiss it as a mistake or a misstep or an error in judgment. If indeed, if indeed, it should be called a sin. And by the way, that was a part of David's problem, and that's why I'm making such a point of that. Because can you believe, would you believe it if I said to you that even someone that we revere as much as David went for over a year, most scholars believe, before he finally came clean about this sin that was plaguing him. He went for a long time before he ever confessed it and called it what it was. We read on in verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Now, what is he talking about there? David is saying, look, there were some consequences of my sin. And sin brings consequences. I want to talk to you about three symptoms now of sin, just quickly. You might want to jot these down if you're just looking for, hey, what does sin actually do when it is unconfessed over a period of time? Number one, it has emotional and physical consequences. Things like increased stress, increased anxiety, and even paranoia. And all of that leads to a sense of physical and emotional fatigue. It just weighs us down. Now, by the way, I'm talking now about people who are genuine believers. They truly are believers, and they know that what they've done is, is wrong. All my comments today are not about that person who doesn't believe there's even such a thing as sin. By the way, did you know the Oxford Junior Dictionary some years ago actually took the word sin out of the dictionary? That's why I bring this up, because there's some people who don't even believe there's such a thing. And when they got some heat for this and people pushed back, their explanation was, we took the word sin out because, and I quote, it has fallen into disuse and has no relevance for younger generations. So when we dismiss sin like that and say, no big deal, doesn't exist, then naturally you're not dealing in the reality that the Bible describes. So for a believer, when he or she lives with unconfessed sin, there are catastrophic results, and we live this, this incredible fatigue. Here's what I'm concerned about. Some of you, perhaps, perhaps, have lived with something unconfessed for so long, and it has been weighing you down and sapping your energy, just like David describes, and I'm concerned that you don't know how encumbering that really is. I want you to be free from that. God wants you to be free. 
But make no mistake, there are emotional and physical consequences. Carl Menninger was a wonderful psychologist of an earlier generation. He once made the statement, if I could convince my patients that they are truly forgiven, 75% of them would never need to see me again. He was speaking of those symptoms, that fatigue, that stress that comes when people have unconfessed sin and unresolved guilt. Secondly, there are relational consequences. Another symptom that we see are these relational consequences that, that come. Now, so you can do a diagnosis of yourself. I want to ask you just a few questions, and you could do your own diagnosis. Have you found yourself quickly becoming angry and frustrated with people? You know, maybe others, others in your family. You say, well, pastor, I don't know. Well, ask the others. They'll know. <laughs> they'll know. They'll know right away. They'll, hopefully, they'll tell you the truth. Are you kind of quick to anger and quick to becoming frustrated? Okay? That is an important question. Because unconfessed sin leads to guilt and almost always surfaces in anger. Okay? Second question, just to ask, just to diagnose yourself. Are there some people you've been avoiding? You know, King David, when he had not confessed his sin, he tried to avoid people like Nathan the prophet. You know why? Because he knew that if he encountered Nathan, this godly man, it would put him on the spot. It would be an awkward moment, and he would have to deal with this sin issue that Nathan knew about. Are there some people you're just avoiding because of the awkwardness of that? Because you know that they might call you to accountability. Third, do you find yourself getting defensive? Is this feeling that people have around you like you're walking on eggshells? They just begin to raise something. You immediately go, what's that supposed to mean? And you take everything personally, and you're just prickly, and everybody feels like they're walking on eggshells. And finally, another question. Do you find yourself becoming critical a lot it's particularly hyper critical see here's the way it works people who've received the grace and forgiveness of God usually are freely giving grace and forgiveness to others they know they needed it and they want others to experience it too on the flip side people who are living with unconfessed sin and unresolved guilt are miserable in their guilt and shame, and they tend to want others to feel guilt and shame around them. They want others to join in their misery. And so they're just carping and critical all the time, just critical of people around them. Do you find that to be true? Now, if any of those things are true, it may be an indication. It may be an indication that God is seriously trying to tap you on the shoulder this very moment and go, we need to do some business together, really. We, we need to talk, you and I. I love, oh my goodness, I love that billboard in Latham right now that says, we should talk, and it's signed, Jesus. That's a great billboard. We should talk, and it's signed, Jesus. And maybe God is saying that to you today.
But the third consequence is spiritual consequences. You see, here's the deal about sin. It drives a wedge between us and God. Oh, we could go on and on with scripture about this. Isaiah 59 two. your sins have made a separation between you and your, your transgressions have hidden his face from you so that he cannot hear. The psalmist writes in Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished sin in my heart, in other words, if I'd gone on with unconfessed sin and unresolved guilt in my life, if I'd cherished that sin and not confessed it, the Lord would not have listened. Imagine that. Well, you talk about frustrating and stymieing your spiritual progress. That'll do it. So can you see now how the blessed life comes through the door of confession and just getting transparent. And that's one of my visions for Grace Fellowship Church, that we'd be a place like that where people can come just as they are and get real. And every time I hear someone say something like that to me, you know what? I am just proud of God that he's created a church like that where, you know, to a tremendous degree, there's a lot of realness here. Not a ton of phoniness, to be honest. People are just feeling safe. Many people just feel safe to get real about the struggles they're having. And so one of the reasons we're going to come in just a moment and pray here at the front area, at all of our campuses, over in Greenbush, up in Saratoga, at Half Moon, at Latham. We're going to come and pray. And I want you to pray about relational issues. They're huge. I've even said, life is relationships. Everything else is just footnotes. Life is relationships. And life is too short, friend, not to get the relationship thing right. Here's the deal. Some of you have been caught in the backwash of other people's sinful actions and you're feeling the hurt of that. You need to come and pray about that with someone. Just share that burden. That's what the Bible says to do. Share your burdens with one another. Lift one another's burdens. Some of you may have done something that set in motion a tsunami of pain for one or more others. Maybe you need to come and talk to someone about that today. I need to talk about what it is that's wedged its way between you and God. David says in verse five, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave. Wow. You forgave the guilt of my sin. We all need that. As I said earlier, I need that, I believe, every day. Someone to talk to, to say, look, this is my struggle. This is where I'm tempted to go off the road. Here's something that's on my heart today. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, the Bible says, that you may be healed physically emotionally, and in your entire soulish life. So here's the way we're going to end this part of the message today. Verse 6 is just one of my favorite statements in all the Word of God. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. So that's why we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to come together. And some of you need to pray about what this means for your future. You see, verse 8 here is another one of my favorites in this amazing life song. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Any of you need any instruction and teaching about your future? Anyone need any counsel on the way you should go? Boy, I do. I'll bet every one of us could use a good dose of that. And he goes on the next verse, verse 9, and say. Do not be like the horse or mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. God's saying, look, don't be like a stubborn animal that has to be controlled. Come freely. Come to confession freely and get real with God. So that's what's going to happen now as we sing as our team leads us from the platform, we're going to come and seek God together in this blessed life of shalom that he has. We'll be coming for all kinds of reasons, but the main thing is don't let this moment pass you by. I want to pass the baton now to our campus pastors where they can guide and shepherd us from here. Now here at Latham, I've 